Please pray with me one more time. God, as we sang before, it is our request that you would speak to us. God, we would hear your voice. We would take heed to your truth. We would embrace your grace and give you all praise and thanks and honor and glory as we listen to your word proclaimed, as we see our Lord Jesus in his, in his glory, and as we understand the, the significance and purpose of, of that as we approach the text in Mark chapter 9. So grateful, God, to, to be fed your word every, every week and to be able to nourish our precious flock here at Faith Bible Church. Thankful are those who are listening. God, I pray that hearts would be encouraged, eyes would be enlightened, and Christ would be exalted. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark once again. And just by the way, we've been in Mark's Gospel for a little over a year now. And uh, today we begin the second half of the book. As we know, Mark has 16 chapters, and we're going to be looking at the first passage of chapter 9 this morning. Today's text is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Familiar to many of us, it tells of the transfiguration, in which I've entitled the sermon, A Glimpse of Jesus' Glory. And like a lot of the stories in the Bible, uh, we can be familiar with its basic contents, but maybe not quite as sure about its significance. What's the meaning? What's the importance of the transfiguration? Why was it? Why is it significant? And what was the purpose of the transfiguration? Like, why did it happen? Okay, so, so meaning and purpose, significance and purpose. We'd like to answer those questions this morning in our continued pursuit of seeing Christ more clearly and loving him more dearly and following him more, what? Nearly, yes. So what a, what a precious privilege it is for us as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to do that, that pursuit together. Well, to help us get there, there's another story that was written, this one in the, the 1800s, and it was by an American author named Samuel Clemens. Has anyone heard of Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain? He was one of America's most famous and beloved authors, storytellers, penning such classics as Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. For sure, he was not a Christian, actually, quite a critic of Christianity and a, kind of a, a skeptic of the faith. But he wrote a story that provides something of an illustration of our Lord's life called The Prince and the Pauper. This was one of his daughter's favorites of all of his books that he wrote, and maybe some of us are aware of it. But this book was Twain's first shot at historical fiction. So it's kind of uh, loosely based on history, but it's actually a fictitious tale. And it tells the story of the young Prince of Wales, Edward VI, who ends up trading places in life with a poor boy named Tom Canty. And after a chance meeting, they discovered to their utter surprise that they were identical in appearance, and they looked uncannily alike. So the prince, who was longing to experience the fun and freedom of boys outside of the, the rigid life of the king's court, 
He takes off his silks and satins and puts on the rags of this poor boy, this pauper, and he leaves the splendor of the palace. But what happens? No sooner does he step outside of the palace that he's treated like a pauper. He's beaten and mocked by the guards. He's laughed at and belittled by the crowds. When he he protests that he's actually the prince, no one believes him. He's driven out into the rough streets and impoverished squalor of the London streets. He was still the prince, the real prince of Wales. But the only thing the people could see was a boy in the dirty, ragged, worn clothes of a pauper. Without taking that metaphor too far, in a sense, this story illustrates what happened in our Lord Jesus' incarnation. He is the eternal Son of God, okay, Messiah the Prince, as Daniel calls him in Daniel 9.25, who clothed himself in the rags of fallen humanity to enter this world and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in doing that, he lost none of his deity. He continued to be the Messiah Prince, the Son of God, the King of Kings. But all of that was veiled in his human nature. So this is what's happening in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, right? Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And this is the incredible event of the incarnation, Jesus, the word becoming flesh. As a result... He appeared as an ordinary man and apparently not very attractive. According to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. Isaiah compares him to a a root out of dry ground. Not a beautiful flower, a root out of dry ground. The New King James says he has no form or comeliness and no splendor. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing outwardly attractive in his appearance. It's another reason why I I don't like uh, watching movies depicting Jesus or those photogenic paintings of, of Christ, which typically project him with these westernized, model like good looks. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what he looked like, but it does tell us that his appearance was like an ordinary Jewish man with no physical traits that would attract people to him. Now, that's not the appearance we might expect the Son of God to take, but that's what his word says. This is how he entered the world. And as we come to the middle of Mark's gospel and past the midpoint of our Lord's ministry, what have we been studying In chapter 8, there was the issue of Jesus' real identity. You recall we spent three parts in in the the first sections of Mark chapter 8 looking at the problem of spiritual blindness. The problem of spiritual blindness. The people looked at Jesus and they thought he was something else or someone else. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. The people could not see beyond the outer appearance to his real identity. It was a spiritual blindness problem. They couldn't see the king through the servant. The disciples themselves, as we've continued to reiterate, they're just beginning to know this for themselves, to beginning to see, confess 
that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah King written of in the Scriptures. The crowds, for the most part, could not see it. They couldn't see beyond Jesus' external appearance. They couldn't see who he really was. But that was revealed to Peter and the rest of the twelve from above by the Father, and this was not of human wisdom or knowledge. So, as the Lord is progressively revealing himself to them, he affirms their confession by calling himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man, the term from Daniel chapter 7. The heavenly man, the king who comes in the clouds and presents himself before the Ancient of Days, who gives him and he receives from him all glory and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. So again, what does the Son of Man look like when he comes to the earth? To look at him, one wouldn't think he was such a glorious figure. Again, there's no stately form. There's no glory. His appearance was that of a simple Jewish man. He was a carpenter. So to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah King, as the Son of God, this was a a confession of faith, not of sight. It was spiritual faith, spiritual sight. So what does Jesus teach the Twelve next? As you can see, we're doing a brief uh, review again once we get into the passage. He teaches them, yes, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And then he tells them that he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected and even be killed. He tells the disciples, he tells the crowds, he tells us that there is suffering also for you to bear as well. This is part of what it means to follow me. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's not what they were expecting, was it? The disciples, they've confessed him as the Messiah. The crowds, they thought of him perhaps as, a, as someone who's going to overturn the, the situation in, in, um, in Rome there, uh, under Rome in Israel. They're anticipating a kingdom. If he's the king, they're anticipating a kingdom now. But Jesus says to expect a cross, not a kingdom. Be prepared for suffering. Take up my cross. Lose my life. Surrender everything. Wait, what about the glory? Where's that? What about the kingdom? Where's that? Isn't that what we've been expecting and what we've been waiting for? So we know that the twelve, actually the eleven, were men of genuine faith in Christ. They were true disciples. But this caused confusion in their minds, a disturbance in their hearts. All of that brings us finally to our text in chapter 9. And it basically answers one of the questions that I want us to consider as we look at the the transfiguration here. The purpose of this spectacular event was to encourage the disciples' faith and to enlighten their view of his actual identity and his true nature. It was to confirm what they just confessed and to help them continue to trust in him and follow him, even on the road to suffering. Hey, that's the purpose, and we'll say it again as we go through this, but that's the main purpose of the transfiguration. And I think this applies to, to those of us today who are Jesus' disciples. In this amazing experience that the three had on that mountain, which is in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we are being given a glimpse of Jesus' glory, and so that we too can be encouraged to persevere 
as we see Jesus in his real nature. And we're encouraged in our walks of faith with our Lord. So before I read the text, I want to give you the significance. Okay, And it's, it's written in your insert. Once again, it's going to be on the board, I believe, on the, the screen. The significance of the transfiguration was that it unveiled the true nature of who Jesus is. Okay, the magnificence of his glory and majesty. And this is a, a brief preview of the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's the, that's the meaning, that's the essence of the transfiguration. And then we have the purpose, uh, which we're going to look at as we go through the text. All right? So let us uh, stand if we are able. And I'm going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. It's a wonderful passage that we've come upon this morning. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, Listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. You may be seated. So I want to offer to you this morning, I want us to see these three facets of Christ's transfiguration, which once again, enlighten our view of his glorious nature and encourage us, enlighten and encourage us to trust, listen to, and follow him. And the first facet is, verse 1 there, the promise of the kingdom. The promise of the kingdom. And Jesus was saying to them, so this is the crowds and the twelve, they're all still there. Truly, I say to you, this is a, a statement, uh, something coming up that's worth paying attention to. Listen up. And this is right after his straightforward teaching on the cost of discipleship. Okay, once again, to their ears, it was not something they were necessarily wanting to hear. Okay, it was very difficult for them to hear that. Unexpected, even unwanted words from the Lord. And so to give them some encouragement... And to confirm the few who did have faith and to affirm those who were truly seeking him in his gospel and his kingdom, our Lord gives them this promise. And it's a promise that some of them standing there listening would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And there are various views on what event Jesus was referring to here. And uh, what event it was that he's, he's saying is going to take place before some of them pass away. Five main views. I'll just go over them really quickly. Number one is Jesus' ascension and resurrection. Some people think Jesus was talking about that. 
Number two is Pentecost. Okay? In, in Acts, when, when the Holy Spirit comes and it's the beginning of the church. Number three is the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Number four is the manifestation of the kingdom in the church. And number five is the transfiguration. And given the context, and as I look at all three synoptic gospels, and including here in Mark, um, it seems quite clear to me that Jesus is referring to what is about to happen on that high mountain. Okay, verse 1 there in chapter 9 is directly connected to the previous teaching at the end of chapter 8, like I just said. And it's also directly connected to what happens next, his transfiguration in verse 2 and on. Okay, the promise of the kingdom is, that's given in verse 1 is fulfilled less than a week later. Okay, as three of the disciples were given a glimpse of the glory of Christ, unveiling the power of God's kingdom in his transfiguration. So let's look at this promise briefly, this promise of the kingdom that Jesus gives. Okay, three quick things to note. And what he says, like I said, is an encouragement to those who are listening. Yes, there is that heavy, weighty cost of following me. You better count that cost. But yes, also, there is a kingdom to come, and some of you are going to see it. Okay, that's the first part of the promise. The, the, the confirmation of the coming kingdom is that first thing that we want to notice in verse 1. Okay, that's Jesus' implied promise. The kingdom of God, as we've been saying and teaching throughout the past two years of his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. But what does he mean by that? He means it's not far off. Okay, the king has come. It's near to all. And the offer is to enter it by receiving the Messiah King. That's his invitation. All who would repent and believe in the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, you can be a part of God's kingdom, the spiritual realm of God's rule, where he is reigning. He will reign in your hearts. And that is for now. That is available to all who will turn from their sin and turn to him. That's the gospel call. And he promises that there is a kingdom yet to come. That's when he returns in glory. It's what he lovingly admonished about just before in, in verse 38 of chapter 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In the meantime, however, there are some here who will actually see the kingdom before then. And so that leads us to the second thing about the promise of the kingdom. Second thing he promises about the kingdom is that it will come with power. It will come with power. It's at the very end of the verse, right? So there's going to be some manifestation of power, some demonstration of strength that the kingdom is going to come with. This would be encouraging for the disciples and the crowds to hear as well. They're trying to take in Jesus' words about losing their life for his sake, surrendering, surrendering everything for the gospel, denying themselves, bearing their cross, Yes, they would be in need of strength and power right about now, even if they might not yet have a full understanding of what all that entails, what it means. And so Jesus has promised that it's going to come with power. Third thing Jesus promises about the kingdom is that it will be seen by some of those who are standing there. As, as Jesus is teaching, he's proclaiming, some of you will actually see the kingdom of God Come with power before you die. Some among them will be able to see the kingdom. This is not a, just like a, you know, a, a, a vision or a dream or something. 
He says you're going to be able to see the kingdom with their own eyes to witness some visible expression of its power and glory. And what a prediction. What a prediction. What a promise. So there is a kingdom to come. It's going to come with much power. And it is actually going to be seen by some of you. So before we get to the next point, um, the implication for us is this. We should remember that these are not words that can be spoken of or predicted or promised by just anyone. Okay? Someone who does this must be, must be someone like Jesus. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Okay? Though he's veiled by taking on human flesh, he's clothed in humanity, he's fully human, he is at the same time God the Son, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. I open the service reading a few verses from Psalm 24. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, strong in battle, victorious in, in battle. He is the King of glory. This is our Lord Jesus. So the second facet that we want to look at next is, is this preview, this preview of the King's glory. In verses 2 through 6, this is, this is a, a preview of the king's glory. So it says there in verse 2, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And Matthew also says six days later this happened. Luke says some eight days later, about eight days later. In other words, about a week. And Luke was not as exact as Matthew and Mark were in his recording. But the point is that all three synoptic gospels denote the time frame in numbers of days. And this is this is pretty unusual. And all of them are specific. So this indicates a close connection with what was said before, what was being taught before, what Jesus was saying before to the crowds, and what is happening now. And this is a primary reason for me to believe that that event that Jesus predicted and promised was, in fact, the transfiguration. And so Jesus takes three of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These are the ones who were standing there before, six days earlier, who would be the witnesses okay, uh, to the kingdom of God coming with power. Of Jesus' twelve disciples who he personally called, these were the three who were closest to him. Recall that it was specifically those three who he allowed to be him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And it's also those three who he took with him to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. And he purposely brings these three up with him to witness his transfiguration, this, this unbelievable, unique experience. The location is most likely on Mount Hermon, an elevation of over 9,000 feet with its famous snow-capped peaks. Jesus brings them up there. Mark says, by themselves. So Peter, James, and John were the ones who Jesus spoke of in verse 9 who would see the kingdom come with power before they died. Right? So these guys who would be used, arguably, the most by the Lord to begin the church and to serve as his leaders and apostles and gospel missionaries, 
Hey, certainly they were in need of a boost, hey, of some spiritual encouragement. Their confession about Jesus was true, but their earthly expectations, as we talked about last week, needed some adjusting. And they did have that confusion in their minds about all that Jesus was saying. So Jesus is going to give them here uh, a preview of his glory. And talk about clearly seeing who Jesus is, right? That's what we were aiming for when we were in Mark chapter 8 and addressing the problem of spiritual blindness. Okay, the point was for us to see who, who Jesus is as clearly as we can. And this is his true nature about to be unveiled to them. Verse 2 and 3 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. He transfigured. That word means to be changed, to be transformed. And um, the Greek word is metaphorao, metamorphos, where we get the English word metamorphosis. And it's, it's um, like, a, like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. And Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. This is in the passive tense. Okay? This is inferred that it's the Father who's doing this. And all this time, as the disciples were traveling up north through that area in Caesarea Philippi, as they were hiking up Mount Hermon, and all the other times they'd been with him this past two-plus years, Jesus' appearance was that of a, of a regular man. Okay, no halo above his head, no bright aura around his body, okay, no glowing trail behind him as he walked. He was the prince-king looking like a mere pauper. But on this day, this moment, his true nature was being revealed. It's being peeled back. His appearance was changed visibly. And it was resplendent with supernatural, divine brightness. It's like Hebrews 1 verse 3 coming to life. And he is the radiance, the shining forth of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his glory. Others have explained well that in the transfiguration, Jesus exhibited a change on the outside which came from his inside, from his true nature, his divinity. Of course, Jesus' actual essential nature did not change, but only his appearance. For a brief time, he looked on the outside what he actually was on the inside. So his, his glory shined right through his humanity, right through his garments, Hey, Matthew says, his face shone like the sun. I, I love how Mark adds that his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. Somebody adds like snow. And then Mark says, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And this is obviously a, a supernatural divine thing. Luke describes him as glistening, hey, emitting light. This suggests like, like lightning, hey, flashing lights, brilliant Brilliant light. So this was a a brightness, a brilliance like no other. And it harkens our minds back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? Many times when the glory of God visibly appeared to the Israelites, how did he do that? Almost always in some form of light. And just just a a cursory few verses. Exodus 16, verse 7 and 10, when he appears to Israel. Exodus 24, verse 15 to 18 and Exodus 33, 18 to 23, he appears to Moses. Exodus 29, Exodus 40, after the tabernacle was completed. 
Leviticus 9.23, when the priestly service was initiated. Numbers 14, verse 10, at Israel's rebellion. Numbers 16, verse 19, when the sins of Korah were exposed. Later on, 1 Kings 8.11, at the dedication of the temple. Later still, appearing to Ezekiel in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 10, chapter 11. In each of those times, each of those times, God's glorious presence showing up as some form of light. His purpose was to be present with them okay, and to strengthen their faith in him. So Jesus here shows forth his glory as the king of all glory, shining brighter than the sun or any star that he himself created. Okay, this gave the three disciples and gives us a glimpse, a glimpse of what Jesus really was on the inside. And it's the glory which was and is his essential and eternal divine nature, shining outwardly for this brief time, and to a degree that, that those three could, could handle it. Okay, the transfiguration enlightened their view of Jesus' identity. So they, get a, they got a preview of the king's glory, like a preview of Revelation 1 that Patrick read, read for us earlier. Right? Revelation 1. Verse 13 again, it says, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to, the, to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. It's like John says also in John 1.14, the word became flesh and we saw, we beheld his glory. Peter wrote about it some 35 years later. Peter, who was there, he was one of the three, right? In Second Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, this is actually the only other direct reference to the transfiguration in all of Scripture. Second Peter chapter one, verses 16 through 18. Peter writes, 35 years later, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about him and James and John. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased quoting God the Father at that mount. Verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter writes about this incident, this incredible event, years later. So this preview of the king's glory, which was a preview of God's kingdom, coming with power, as Jesus said, the three disciples got to see what will be fully revealed to the entire world in the future when the King of Glory does return to earth. Matthew 24, verse 30. And this, this is Jesus speaking. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Chapter later, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
And I won't read it, but some of us are thinking of Revelation 19, right? Starting in verse 11, when Jesus comes, and this is symbolically on a white horse, flames of fire again, blood on his robe, coming with a mouth, uh, a sword coming out of his mouth. He's coming in judgment. And so this picture, the point is this. The transfiguration was a preview of all of that. Okay, what Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of, as Jesus promised in, in verse 1, where we started today, they would see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All those verses that I read to you, power, strength, authority, glory, this was demonstrated as the king himself was transfigured. It was unveiled for the disciples. So, what's the meaning, what's the significance of the transfiguration? It's that Jesus' true nature is being revealed, being unveiled. His real identity is momentarily uncovered. We see his blinding splendor, his radiant glory, his majestic power, who Jesus really is as the Messiah King. It exalts and shows us visibly who he is. And as such, it was a preview, a brief preview of God's kingdom. So that's the significance of it. What is the purpose again? The purpose is that the disciples would take heart in seeing the Lord's real nature in all its glory and power, that this would encourage them to continue in their faith, to trust him all the more and to keep following him. And even as the path to suffering awaits, that's the purpose. And one pastor put it this way, quote, the transfiguration was nothing more nor less than the Lord God Almighty reaching out and lifting the curtain, saying, though the road ahead will be hard, this is the way things are going to be at the second coming. A faith will become sight. And that's an end quote. Now faith will become sight for the three disciples. Faith will become sight for us as well. And we need to keep this vision of Christ and his glory, our king's glory and majesty and power in our sights as we live the reality and count the cost of, of being his disciples. And this is for our enlightenment and encouragement. And again, John, the Apostle John, one of those three witnesses, he writes roughly 60 years later in the book that Pastor Bill is going to be teaching in Sunday school. First John 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I'm so thankful for the many loving encouragements and prescriptions and exhortations like that in Scripture to keep us fixing our eyes on Christ with the promise that as we do so, we are being sanctified, we are being purified. One day we're going to see him just as he is, and we're going to be like him. And so what a glorious picture, what a, what a great preview, what a glimpse that Jesus is giving of, of himself to the disciples. And as we read of it, we see the testimony of Scripture, we're seeing it as well. So much hope, so much assurance, so much reason to live for and follow Jesus. So let's see what else happened on the mountain of transfiguration, that incredible day. Verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses 
And they were talking with Jesus. Lo and behold, a couple other people show up to this incredible incident. And by the way, Luke, Luke says that Jesus' transfiguration happened while he was praying. And apparently the three, Peter, James, and John, says had been overcome with sleep. They became very sleepy. Uh, that was before, though. And now they were fully awake, Luke writes, and they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Luke 9, verse 32. And how exactly did they know it was Elijah and Moses? That's a question some of us have, right? Um, none of the texts uh, actually tell us this. Maybe it was from hearing Jesus talking to them and saying their names. Maybe from the kind of things that they were talking about. Maybe it was by their intuition. Who knows? But what we do know is that the word tells us it was them and that they appeared and that they were talking with Jesus and somehow they were recognized. In other words, they weren't apparitions or ghosts. They weren't a figment of anyone's imagination. I'm not sure what Elijah, as one who was taken up into heaven, what his bodily form looked like or looks like. It seems that both he and Moses as Old Testament saints existed as glorified spirits in heaven, but somehow they, they appeared in physical bodies. Luke writes, in glory. And maybe they have temporary glorified bodies for this occasion. Another question that comes us is, what were they talking about with Jesus? And if we didn't have the other Gospels to refer to, we wouldn't know. But Luke again in 9 verse 31 says, they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were talking about Jesus' death, his oncoming crucifixion. Even then and there at the Mount of Transfiguration, in this glorious moment, the accomplishment of Jesus' sufferings was the main point of discussion with Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And this reminds us again of the centrality of the cross, the importance of the gospel, And a reminder that the cross comes before the crown. In this preview of the king's glory, the transfiguration is is kind of a preparation towards that gruesome suffering that's ahead, which Jesus, he's going to be revealing more and more about this to to his disciples. But how encouraging, how empowering for them to see his true stunning brilliance and power and true nature before that time. It's interesting and likely very purposeful that this extraordinary experience was done in the witness of two or three people as prescribed in the Old Testament to validate the truth of something happening. Three of Jesus' disciples were there to verify, Peter, James, and John, and two of the Old Testament men of God. And Moses and Elijah Whereas representatives of the law and the prophets, okay, Moses the law, Elijah the prophets, it was these two Old Testament stalwarts that bore witness to Jesus in his transfiguration. Okay, their presence with Jesus there testified of him being the true Messiah King, and their discussion with him, their conversation with him, testified that the king would die for his subjects. So this leads us to our final couple of verses here. Verses 5 and 6, it says uh, of this point, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
Mark says he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Of course, it's Peter who speaks up, right? Never passing up an opportunity to keep quiet when he can, he can talk instead. Verse 6 says the three of them were in a terrified state. The experience was all quite overwhelming to them, and so he didn't know what to say. Luke writes that he didn't even realize what he was saying and that this was happening as Moses and Elijah were departing from them. So commentators have different reasons on why they think Peter suggested making these tabernacles, right? these tents, these booths, uh, these temporary shelters that were made out of branches of trees like the Israelites did during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Uh, some seem to allude that Peter was trying to prolong this experience, uh, witnessing the glory of Christ the King, and wanting to stay there for as long as possible, and wanting Elijah and Moses to stay longer, that maybe this was how God was going was to bring about his kingdom, and that's what Peter wanted. So forget about the suffering, skip bearing my cross, let's go straight to, to rolling and ruling in the kingdom. Maybe, I don't know. Um, this is another thing that's not exactly explained in any of the synoptic gospels or any of the texts of, of the rest of the New Testament. I tend to think that this was just Peter rambling, okay, probably with good intentions, wanting to serve the Lord and the prophets. And this would be in line with the Jewish hope that God would once again tabernacle with his people. But in any case, his, his bantering, he's not realizing what he's saying. He's just, just blurting out as he usually does. He kept on going. Matthew records, while he was still speaking. Okay, Peter just kept talking and talking. The next verse tells us how he stopped talking. Okay, so following the promise of the kingdom and a preview of the king's glory, none other than the king's father shows up. Okay, and this, this finally shuts Peter up. Okay, so our third facet, our third facet, which I hope is enlightening our vision of who Jesus really is, and also encouraging us as we, as we walk with him to persevere. The third facet is a pronouncement from the king's father. A pronouncement from the king's father. It says there in verse 7, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay, in further fitting form, in addition to appearing as light in the Old Testament, maybe I gave you a lot of scriptures there, the cloud also was a symbol of God's presence, his Shekinah glory. Many times we read it's how he makes his presence known amongst the people. And I won't give you all the scriptures, okay? Exodus 24, Exodus 13, 16, 19, Leviticus 16, Numbers 11. Okay, we could go on and on. But this bright cloud formed here in the transfiguration, overshadowing them, it says, and God speaks, God speaks, interrupting, interrupting, Peter's just going on and on. What does God say? Okay, I'm going to put all the, the um, parallel passages together from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, this is what he says. This is my beloved son, my chosen one, in whom, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And God the Father's pronouncement affirms who Jesus is. Okay, do you get that? As the voice of God comes from the cloud comes from, from him. His pronouncement affirms who Jesus is. Okay? The, the only begotten, unique Son of God. Okay? The, the Greek has it, this is my Son, my beloved one. Okay? The emphasis 
it's being placed equally on those two facts. The Messiah is God's son, and he is the beloved one. He's uniquely, specially loved. This affirms the confession of Peter just before when Jesus asked him again, right? Who do people say that I am? Then Jesus turns to him and says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. As the father was at Jesus' baptism, Mark 1.11, so is he well pleased with his dear son here at his transfiguration. So, brief implication for us. As we see here how pleasing Jesus is to our Heavenly Father and how deeply, uniquely beloved he is, can we see how worthy Jesus is of our entire love and affections? That's kind of as an aside, but Matthew adds, Matthew adds in um, chapter 17, verse 6, in his parallel passage, when the disciples heard this, they heard, heard the voice of the Lord, voice of the Father, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Hey, we might take that the Father's command, listen to him, was in some sense a, a rebuke to Peter, who, as usual, spoke before listening. It's a reminder that one can't listen and speak at the same time. Hey, all three of them needed to take heed of that, and um, so do we. Hey, the Father's command to them, as to us, is to listen to him. This is a present imperative, meaning a continual pattern, a continual trait, characteristic of one's lifestyle, habitual pattern of one's life. It's not to merely hear what he has to say, it's to listen and, and consistently, continually obey him. It recalls what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. You shall listen to him. In context here in Mark, what did the disciples need to hear to listen to Jesus about? They needed to listen to and understand that he, as the king of glory, who they're getting a glimpse of here, he must go through much rejection, suffering, and eventually be killed. And this was something that they could not fathom, they couldn't handle, they couldn't understand, they couldn't accept it. But that is what they needed to hear. That's what they needed to specifically listen to. So as to gain an understanding of the person and mission of Jesus. That's what they needed. His way was marked with blood, with sweat, with tears. And so as his disciples, they needed to listen to his call to share in that suffering. He is the beloved son who must suffer. And so must those who are truly following after him. And the good news tells us that after the cross comes what? Comes the crown. Okay? For the disciples and all Christians of all time, it's loving truth that we will suffer to some degree for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake. And in doing so, Jesus promises that we will save our lives. Again, it's, it's not earning salvation. It rather, it's the reality of the one who is Jesus' disciple. And so Paul later writes in Romans 8, verse 17, We suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. Even later he writes to Timothy, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Timothy 3, verse 12. Once again, Peter, who's one of the three witnesses here, says 
to the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, we keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, we may rejoice with exultation. First Peter four thirteen. So there's joy to be had at the end. There's joy to be had in the suffering, through the suffering, as Jesus says, even on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that we should rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted and people are insulting us and lying us for his sake and the gospel's sake. But in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who came before you. There's joy to be had. Matthew's account says that after God spoke, the disciples fell on their faces in fear. So Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. How, how typical of our kind and tender and gracious king. That's what we'd expect. He came and touched them and said, don't be afraid. Verse 8 in Mark 9 tells us, All at once they looked around and so saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah, they're gone. Peter, James, John, look around. No one's there except Jesus alone. And Jesus is all they, like us, need. Jesus only. Some encouraging words from D.L. Moody as we wrap up here. D.L. Moody, I don't know if it's a poem that he wrote or just um, just uh, something he called Jesus only. Quote, and uh, I hope we're all encouraged by this, so, so listen up. And this is like comparing like what we used to think and, and see um, Maybe in our younger faith or, or, or less enlightened view of who Jesus is. Um, not quite as, as far along in our grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then now what it is as we consider who Christ is. Okay, once it was the blessing. Now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling. Now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now himself alone. Once I sought for healing, now the healer own. Once twas painful trying, now tis perfect trust. Once half a salvation, or a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once it was what I wanted, now what Jesus says. Once twas constant asking, now tis ceaseless praise. Lastly, once was my working, his it hence shall be. Once I tried to use him, now he uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Now, I mean, once I worked for glory, now his will be done. Yeah, I, I thought that encapsulates everything, and, and sometimes we're, we're quick to ignore these last words, but Jesus alone, and he was all that's left. And this incredible, spectacular, unbelievable, dazzling experience, after that, they got a preview, a glimpse of the glory of the king. And, and now it's, it's him, and they're... Their understanding, their, their vision, their, their being enlightened of, of who Christ is, his real nature. And so this is the significance of the transfiguration as they saw 
the magnificence of his glory and his majesty. And this was a brief preview of God's kingdom. What was the purpose? Once again, as D.L. Moody kind of captured there in a poetic way, it's, it's for, for the disciples, for us, all of us who are followers of Christ, to enlighten our view of who Jesus is. Hey, we can never be satisfied with how accurately we are seeing him and, and savoring him as who he is. And as we see his future glory, it's to encourage us. Encourage us to trust him more, to listen to him, to obey him, and to, to follow him, even through sufferings for his sake and the Gospels. Okay? So that's our, our message for today. And let's pray. Father, I, I hope, I pray, I, I desire, God, that through this incredible telling, this, this history of this wondrous event of the Son's transfiguration, the preview of his glory, that we have been caused to, as we prayed earlier, to, to see him, to see him more clearly today. And we want that to result in loving him more dearly, loving him more, and to following him more nearly in our lives, in our practical daily lives. Thank you once again, God, that we can hear this together, being subject, sitting under the authority of your word, and encouraging each other uh, on the path uh, to, to following Christ with all that entails in this life, knowing and believing that there is, there is a crown to come, an eternal reward uh, that precious, priceless treasure that you have promised to us. And that, that crown, we're going to just cast it back to you, uh, wanting you and desiring you to be glorified. So thank you, Father, so much for your word, your truth, your grace, your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.